think that's one of those things when you're trying to do big things that you have to be able to adjust and, uh, and reinvent yourself a little bit. I'm Erin Neuenhaus, a sophomore studying business administration at the University of Washington. You're listening to Founded, a podcast that connects you to a community of entrepreneurs, investors, and mentors involved with the Burke Center for Entrepreneurship. Their journey will leave you engaged, educated, elevated, and ready to launch and grow your own idea. Thank you, Aaron. I'm Charles Trillingham, coming to you from the Foster School of Business at the University of Washington. We're bringing you just one guest this time, and for good reason. You're about to hear from the co-founder of a company that's raised a bunch of money here in the Northwest by having a deep understanding of the problem they're trying to solve, the competitors in that space, and the market for their solution. Oh, and this problem? It dates back 125 years. This is the intersection of science and business relayed in almost poetic terms. Take a listen. I'm joined now by Max Efkin, co-founder and VP of Business Development at Supercritical Technologies, which uses its PowerCube compact power plant units to provide clean and reliable energy. Max, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate being here. Max, we'll dig deeper into the genesis of Supercritical here in a minute, but I want to highlight uh, some good news you received recently. Your company was among those who got a Washington State Department of Commerce grant, almost $300,000? Yeah, right. Yeah, so it's part of the Clean Energy Fund, um, which is a a, a grant uh, that's done through the Department of Commerce. And the whole idea is to really kind of um, help stimulate and grow uh, the clean tech economy here in Washington State. Um, let's take a step back. Uh, how does a guy with an MBA from UW and a degree in psychology from Michigan end up here? Uh, end up in the clean tech space. Well, in Seattle. Well, in Seattle, well, um, I wasn't always in the clean tech space. Uh, I originally moved to Seattle in 97, and um, I was actually doing a lot of IT work, um, a lot of computer networking, and then um, and customer relationship management systems. And that kind of brought me out here initially. So um, it was not necessarily something that uh, getting into the clean tech space was not my genesis for moving here. Uh, coming up on 20 years here in Seattle. So uh, this place really kind of feels more like home now than anything else. Can you remember um, the first time you kind of felt that entrepreneurial itch? Yeah, Um well, it's, it's kind of, it goes pretty deep in my family. Um, you know, my father's an entrepreneur, his father was an entrepreneur. So, you know, uh, actually his, my great grandfather's an entrepreneur. So it, it's kind of, um, I don't want to say how we're wired, but we're definitely inclined, uh, to kind of see the world that way as, as problems that need solutions and that, you know, you can, um, really make a big impact by taking on, you know, big challenges. Now, your, your first startup was 12sided.com. Talk a little bit about that experience. Sure, yeah. So I'd spent um, uh, the five years previous to that um, with a company called Motive, which was based out of Austin, Texas, uh, which is now part of Alcatel-Lucent. And so it was primarily dealing with um, help, uh, basically help systems in, and self-service systems in the enterprise space. And um, I'd gotten to a point there that um, I, my just being a remote employee and having customers all over the country uh, and the product roadmap really at Motive, it started to kind of diverge from what I really wanted to do. And at the same time, I had a number of my customers from Motive that still really wanted to continue the relationship. So that's really kind of how it started. And, um, you know, it was a, uh, a good way for me to kind of, you know, take a little bit of a step back and really kind of figure out, you know, what 
I was truly interested in versus, you know, what, you know, what's the next best thing for the company be a little more introspective than, you know, just always kind of hard charging towards, you know, that next goal that we had to make, you know, kind of with, you know, at motive or whatnot. Uh, motive overall, though, you know, was a great experience. It was started by a lot of very uh, successful entrepreneurs. have gone on to do a lot of different things since. And so it's, you know, that was a great experience, but also being on my own was, you know, kind of the really the first testing of the waters of that. So, um, you know, it, it was it was good. I mean, it really showed me the value of creating relationships with people um, and that that really matters. The dipping the toe in the water, uh, critical. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the biggest thing is you cannot have any fear of failure with that. Like, you know, if you're going to go in, you just got to go in. And that's really kind of what that experience taught me. So that brings us to clean tech. Mm-hmm. So what about clean tech caught your eye? Really, um, it was more the technology of supercritical than clean tech as a whole. And I would still say kind of deep down, um, you know, really it's, it's the disruptive nature of the, the power cycle that we're commercializing that really kind of excites me versus say clean technology just kind of as a broad brush you know spectrum because there's a lot of different types of technologies um, that are kind of you know competing really for you know how we're going to power the planet you know in going forward with the this power cycle it is so disruptive in terms of the orders of magnitude of how much smaller you're able to make equipment and so when you're able to make a power plant that can fit into a shipping container um, that changes a lot of different dynamics within the logistics, within the supply chain. And really, at the end of the day, you're able to put power closer to where it's consumed. And this kind of gets back to a, a, a theme of mine in terms of like the closer when we've seen this revolution, you know, with PCs, with smartphones, you know, anytime you put power closer to where people are actually using it, um, you know, great things happen. Now, it, the inspiration for this came from Shaul Davidson. How did you end up connecting with him? And talk a little bit about your roles then. This is circa 2011, 2012, yeah. and now. Shaul and I met actually here at the Evening MBA program. Um, so, you know, so he has an MBA as well. You know, he, his background is in the nuclear power space. Um, he spent you know, a lot of time not only retrofitting submarines over at Bremerton Naval Base, but uh, also with TerraPower. And, um, and he's researched this technology for about a dozen years. And actually, our, um, our chief scientist, Steve Wright, is, is kind of considered the, one of the leading authorities of the supercritical power cycles in general. But um, most of his specific work is around the CO2 power cycle. The, so, you know, Shaw and I met, obviously, through business school. Um, you know, we have very entrepreneurial-like minds, and that's kind of how we met. Um, he and Steve had been working on, um, you know, the technology for about a dozen years. And when we kind of overlaid the, you know, hey, look, it's not just that you can build a power plant, but you can do it in a way that's radically different, you know, than how power plants are made, but falls within existing, you know, technical structures and operational structures and manufacturing processes that you could really be in a position to, you know, do something really important. Well, I think that momentum's really interesting because it's it, so it's 2012. Um, you've done some competitions. You've raised some angel funding, two hundred thousand dollars to help develop a prototype, uh, and then you enter the Jones plus Foster accelerator. We've seen how that kind of six-month milestone-based mentoring 
um, really can help evolve idea. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah. So, um, you know, we did the, um, the EIC and the business plan competition and, you know, and each time through that, you know, we kind of felt like we were getting better. We knew we weren't, you know, a hundred percent ready to go out and go raise millions and millions of dollars, but we knew that we were getting better. We knew that we were getting you know, more comfortable with the story that we were finding the story that we were being challenged to really hone the strategy to a point where, you know, a venture capitalist would take you seriously. And then the Jones Foster uh, came on and, you know, our mentors were actual entrepreneurs and venture capitalists who, you know, have raised millions and millions of dollars, invested millions, millions of dollars. And that experience was great because, um, you know, just having the kind of discipline of milestones as we, you know, had were, you know, no longer had the structure of the MBA program because we had had literally just graduated and, uh, you know, we were out there, you know, kind of working, you know, in the world to kind of try to make this go. So, you know, the Jones Foster program was definitely great for making sure that, you know, we were staying on task and, you know, and really dealing with the types of folks who would be the initial customers, the the investors. Um, But yeah, from then until now, it's, you know, obviously the ideas have evolved a little bit, the markets have evolved a little bit, but, you know, a lot of the core, a small power package, uh, a standard shipping container, that idea hasn't changed. Yeah, and we'll get, keep getting more into that, but I, I do find it interesting. Your team has this very strong engineering technical side, this very strong business MBA side. Um, do you find that that's a, a, a natural fit, an unnatural fit? There seems to be a path to success that is paved with engineers and MBAs getting together. Really, I think it's it, there's you know two different types of uh, mindsets, right? You know, there's the you know in the MBA parlance, there's poets and quants. Right. Um, so, and the poet is, is the more qualitative uh, mindset, and the, you know the quant is is your your engineer or your finance guy. So, you know, in within kind of the mix of supercritical, you know, we definitely have a good blend of both. I think that's good. It's good in terms of um, the creativity, the strategy. Uh, it does produce, uh, I think, a healthy tension that you know keeps everybody honest. You know, and I think that it's really like it's important uh, in the early stage of any organization that you know, it's not just, you know, you're not buddy, buddy friends, you know, that you have to, you know, really kind of be passionate about the same things, want the same things, but you may not always see the same way of getting there, you know, and that will allow you to kind of flush out those problems, uh, you know, any problem, really not, you know, internal problems, but, you know, just external problems, how you go about raising money finding objections before, you know, you're, uh, before you're in that big investor meeting, you know, um, and, and dealing with that. Um, so, uh, you know, to me, it's, it's a very healthy and natural thing. Um, it doesn't always flow. I mean, there, there are certain, there are angel investors out there that do not want MBAs, you know, in the team. They want a core technical team that they can help and mold. There are the people that do want MBAs in the mix. And there are some people that, you know, almost don't want any technologists really in the mix. So to me, I think what makes it successful in that, you know, Supercritical has been able to, you know, keep our doors open. You know, we, we've stayed in business. You know, we literally just passed our fifth year of um, our, our, you know, actually incorporation. It's, it's been good, but, you know, it's, it's certainly not without tension, you know, and it's, it, I believe it to be a healthy thing. Uh, you also, I mean, you kind of work in that space of um, creating and developing the partners 
mm-hmm. um, you know, beyond working with engineers. You have a partner in Kitsap County, Super Critical is based in Bremerton, Washington. You have a partner a bit in the Pacific Northwest, and you also kind of find yourself working in these remote locations a little bit. How does that help serve what you're trying to accomplish with Supercritical? Yeah, so um, we do have our facility is actually in the Port of Bremerton's uh, facility, and uh, you know the port structure here in Washington is is pretty unique. Um, it's you know they're incented to do economic development. Um, you don't really see that anywhere else in the country. The Port of Bremerton is great because it's you know they have land, air, um, rail, and sea all right there. Um, if you're looking in terms of shipping out logistics, it makes a lot of sense. Um, the Port of Bremerton has been really, um, honestly, they've been fantastic in terms of trying to help us get the things that we need uh, in terms of like you know warehouse space and and um, you know improvements to the warehouse space. That, um, that, quite frankly, we have to have in order to make this work. So, you know, um, I can't say enough good things about them, really, truly. It's, but it is unique, right? I mean, Bremerton, it's an hour away from downtown Seattle. You know, it's uh, a way where you can actually have access to all the same deep water ports that, you know, Port of Seattle or Port of Tacoma or, you know, any of the, you know, it's like 50-plus port authorities here in Washington. So you have access to all those things. Um, but, you know, you can do it at a bit of a, you know, lower, you know, square footage price point. So, and then also too, you know, we, we are dealing with a lot, uh, you know, the, the first movers are, um, you know, going to be, you know, they're not going to be necessarily, um, you know, right here in downtown Seattle. We kind of joke internally a lot that, uh, Washington is a great place to build power plants, but it's a terrible place to sell them, you know, because the cost of power here is just so cheap. But uh, when you look at some of the, like the rural development, you know, a lot of the PUD structure here in Washington, you find them very receptive and they're looking for ways to innovate, you know, to you know, produce more consistent power to their customers, um, you know, primarily due to geography because, you know, their customer base is a lot more spread out than it is, say, here in Seattle. Well, that leads me to, you know, one of the things that is a consistent in your messaging is this idea of the supercritical advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, take me beyond that as a marketing tagline. What does that really mean? You know, the idea really comes comes down to if you can put a power plant into a shipping container, you can put it anywhere, okay? And so when you can do that, how does the world change, right? The, the grid structure we have in this country is, um, you know, it is the world's biggest machine. It was built to do very certain things, make electricity affordable, abundant, and accessible to everyone. And that had never been done on the scale that it has been done. Um, and so, you know, the challenge now for the, you know, 21st century is how do we continue to improve that? And like any network, and because, the, you know, the grid is a network, yet, you know, you need to find technologies that can put power closer to where it's being used. And that's that's really kind of the, you know, the genesis of not only you know, how we are trying to go to market. And that also means, you know, you can use various different fuels to get there, right? Because if you don't have to, you know, tap into a natural gas pipeline, if you can use the indigenous biomass that's there, um, this is something we're seeing a lot in Washington state. Obviously we have a lot of woody biomass and we have a lot of remote areas that need power. Um, so, you know, you can, you know, utilize localized resources um, and then you could really prove out your concept. 
Well, I want to get back to the idea of the, the world's biggest machine because sure. uh, you did a video in 2014 uh, where you talked about fixing the world's biggest machine. Um, and uh, rather than going in depth on this, we'll share the link to that video. Uh, but maybe the Cliff Notes version because you, you do speak a little bit about um, that was a big hurricane year, mm-hmm. 2017. We just went through this again. Fixing that machine is, is as important as ever. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, the, the one of the challenges with, um, you know, the grid, you know, as a machine today is that it, it's doing what it was designed to do. But, you know, we're seeing a lot of different changes, um, you know, affecting it. So, the, you know, basically we have to tweak the machine. We have to change the machine. Um, you know, when you think about like, uh, you know, the hurricanes in, in Texas and Florida and Puerto Rico, uh, you know, people are without power. I mean, the power situation in Puerto Rico is just, it's awful. I mean, there's no other, you know, I mean, I could use more colorful words for it, but it's, it's terrible. And uh, that shouldn't happen, especially anywhere, um, you know, in the United States or its territories. But the challenge there really kind of becomes in, okay, powering islands is, is usually pretty difficult and expensive. Um, so, and you see this throughout the Caribbean, right? You know, brownouts or, you know, power outages, you know, planned power outages are, are not unusual. So how do you get to a point where you can um, survive a hurricane season, you know, and have a direct hit? Um, you know, St. Thomas is another great example um, as far as, you know, power not being, basically being completely destroyed, but, you know, we're not hearing about it. The idea really is that most of the time the power plants are okay. Right. Like in a lot of these cases, you know, the power plants survive because they're designed to survive. What doesn't survive is the infrastructure to move the power to where it's needed. And, you know, the one thing when you think about power and why can't we just use batteries or that sort of thing is that it has to stay in balance. Um, You know, people have been trying to devise grid scale batteries literally since the 1870s. Um, The chemistry is difficult. I mean, we're starting to make headway. Uh, and there's some Washington-based companies that are starting to make headway in that space, but it's still really in its infancy at best. You know, if if the technology had evolved the way power plant technology had evolved, yeah, it'd be a different story. But it, it is it is hard. So when you think about how you can kind of do that, generating power um, is still going to be pretty much an on-demand, needing to stay in balance for quite some period of time. And that's going to be the responsibility of the utilities. And that's a hard job. I mean, I think people always like to kind of, you know, slag on utilities when the power goes out. But, you know, they do have a hard job. And um, but, you know, overhead infrastructure, you know, if you look back historically, you know, the big telephone poles, the telegraph poles, they were there. They were meant to be temporary. And then power comes along and it was like, okay, well, let's just that's there. We'll use it. And now it's become part of our landscape. If if they were buried like the gas infrastructure is, you know that would be a different be a different story. But that's extraordinarily expensive uh, to do at this point. So you know the decisions, are, you know, there's a lot of legacy decisions that are yeah. been made. You know, if I'm thinking about like if I'm the governor of Puerto Rico and how do I you know re-establish my power today, right? It's not only getting power back as quickly as possible, but how do we set up so that we never have this happen again? You know, and that means a lot more remote distribution um, and probably buried power infrastructure as well. Now, Supercritical is one of the companies that, you know, had the prototype in 
um, which is moving forward farther mm-hmm. along. You guys would have loved to have helped out. You told me this earlier when we were speaking yeah. before the interview. But does it give you help to know that you're on the verge of breaking through with this idea that CO2 is a legitimate power source and you can maximize it through minimal you know, size and, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, and I can't tell you how many times, uh, recently, you know, I've been asked like, Oh, oh Hey, you know, it would be great if you had a couple of your units in port in Puerto Rico. And uh, yeah, it, it would be, and it would be helping a lot of people. Um, but we are, you know, we're getting there uh, and it's close and, you know, it's power infrastructure takes time to build. It takes time to prove, um, you know, we're dealing with forces that, you know, if not done properly can be extraordinarily dangerous, but, you know, using carbon dioxide as a working fluid instead of steam, you know, it's still a relatively new concept, but it shows such promise that there are leading scientists out there that, you know, have stated that it could potentially replace the steam cycle, which is a pretty huge statement because the steam cycle has been running basically running the world since about 1830 or so yeah it kind of created something that was literally a revolution yeah absolutely absolutely so in terms of just not only industry but you know if you look at how many people the industrial revolution helped you know population growth and whatnot and we're dealing with problems on the other side of that now right okay well how do we kind of um you know deal with okay we have a lot of people how do we feed them how do we you know how we give them power how do we improve their quality of life so that's, uh, that's, you know, those are kind of what I like to call problems we like to have, right? So, you know, getting there is, is um, it, it's, it's definitely good. You know, I mean, we know we're on the right track. We know that there's going to be a breakthrough. We know we're not the only ones trying to commercialize the supercritical carbon dioxide uh, Brayton cycle or even other CO2 power, you know, power cycle variants. Um, you know, all the big, all the big power manufacturers are researching this heavily. It's exciting to be kind of part of that conversation. Well, it's clear that the passion is there. And I want to bring up something that I find kind of interesting. Um, your Twitter page has an interesting backdrop. Uh, it's a quote by Daniel Burnham. It says, make no little plans. This speaks to, uh, you also did some research with Carolyn Bisk. Uh, it was titled, Great Things Come in Small Packages. Um, now, for listeners at home, uh, Max is not a short person. What about this concept uh, speaks so clearly to your heart? It's really more that, uh, you know, as a, as a person, you know, you're, you know, as a small startup, um, you know, you can, you can do and accomplish some pretty amazing things. Um, you know, and a lot of that starts with the drive of, an individual or a group of individuals that kind of, you know, have um, a need to really kind of want to go and do something big and big, not meaning like, you know, necessarily, um, you know, financial ends, that sort of thing, but more like really kind of solving some very big problems. You know, the Burnham quote is actually, I'm originally from Chicago. And one of the things when you research the history of power, um, Chicago is a really interesting case study. Uh, because of how, um, you know, the modern utility kind of came into existence. And a lot of those early business models were really feted um, in Chicago. Um, A lot of the early, you know, even, you know, the same level of corruption (laughs) that you kind of see, 
you see hairs of today and it's under different guises, of course, but, you know, um, but, you know, back then, I mean, certainly there was just flat out blatant corruption uh, in regards to power. In Chicago? Numbers. I don't believe it. I know. Shocking. But uh, the reality is, is that, you know, when you see that there's a lot of these essentially um, challenges today that are, uh, you know, more of the regulatory mindset. Now, I'm not trying to accuse anybody, you know, of, of today. Of, but there are definitely, um, you know, when you look at the regulatory hurdles um, that have been put in place, um, you can start to see why by looking back and say, okay, well, that, you know, that, you know, this structure was created because of, you know, some of the problems that were associated with, you know, earlier power efforts. You know, when you when you think about that, and especially when you think about post-fire Chicago, you know, 1871, and whatnot, just there was a huge attitude um, there that just was very entrepreneurial, very like wanting to take on the world. That has always kind of resonated and, and um, kind of with me. And uh, you know, this is kind of one of those things that you just kind of take with you as you kind of go forward, and you know, as you see that you you can kind of continue to build on these things. You know, whether it's um, you know. You know, today it's super critical and, you know, these challenges are going to get met and, you know, we're going to be part of that. And then, you know, at, at some point, I'm sure there'll be another entrepreneurial venture somewhere down the line. Well, what does, I mean, we talked a lot about history, but tell me, what does the future look like to Max Afkin? Um, that's, it's always, it's always a good question. You know, um, this is part of, it gets back to maybe some of those challenges of being the MBA, you know, being an MBA, um, you know, in, in the engineering mindset uh or you know with in a more engineering technical firm i mean you know we're you know quickly approaching a point where there has to be a lot more engineering execution but there's always going to be a role for you know developing relationships within um you know within the you know not only for supercritical but within the clean tech community here in washington so you know i think you know as of right now we're going to just continue to keep pushing forward uh with supercritical and you know we'll just kind of we have to, I think that's one of those things when you're trying to do big things that you have to be able to adjust and, uh, and reinvent yourself a little bit. And, um, you know, I think, you know, as you pointed out, you know, probably more clearly than most that, you know, having a, a liberal arts degree and uh, an MBA and working in clean tech, you know, kind of points to that. So I can continue to see myself kind of, you know, continually doing that. A big thank you to Max Efkin for speaking with us and sharing some insights into where supercritical technologies is headed. Xconomy reports the company plans a biomass plant at the Port of Bremerton using its small turbine generators that use carbon dioxide in place of steam. We'll post a link to that article and the speech I mentioned in the interview. I suggest you check those out if you want to learn more about the truly global perspective these entrepreneurs are taking. And be sure to check out our other episodes of Founded right now on iTunes and SoundCloud. For the Burke Center for Entrepreneurship and the Foster School of Business, I'm Charles Trillingham.